Blog Talk Radio. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network is changing the way that Chicago connects with programming like Giving Chicago Ex-Offenders a Fresh Start with Charles Hardwick and Antoine Day coming up Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. Be sure to tune in on Monday nights at 7 p.m. for Chicago Street Journal, an urban news broadcast with host Ron Carter, publisher and editor of Chicago's newest media voice. Interested in sponsoring an upcoming show or joining our team? Give us a call at 773-609-2226, 773-609-2226. For more information, visit Chicago's, that's Chicago with an S, Chicago's Black Business Radio Network.com. This is Sonia Cassandra Purdue, Executive Producer. Do you have student debt? We offer neither debt refinancing nor consolidation. What we offer is student debt obliteration. How? Freelancing your way out of debt. Become a freelancer on our site, mohican.biz. Only those owing student debt and residing in the U.S. can register. Any company or individual can post jobs on the site. Furthermore, mohican.biz strives to bring those individuals still carrying student loan debt together with those institutions who educated them, as well as those who provided the financing to make their education possible. Thus, we will promote our registered freelancers with banks, universities, and many other organizations, including the federal government. The idea is for these institutions to outsource work by posting jobs at mohican.biz, to which our registered freelancers would then apply. Please visit mohican.biz for more information. That's mohican.biz. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you. Hello, my sisters. I am honored and quite thrilled to tell you that we have a very special guest this podcast. Her name is Ray Lois Thornton. She is an Emmy Award-winning AIDS activist, a bracelet designer, and an author. And she has a very interesting story to tell. Ray, would you please tell your sisters about a little bit about your life? Hi there. I am so delighted to be here uh, on your show, Damaged Daughters. Uh, to share a little bit of me, a little bit of wisdom, and a little bit of life and resilience on the other side of pain. I um, have been living with HIV for 30 years. I've been living with AIDS for 21. Um, I am um, the first African-American woman to tell my story on the cover of a magazine, on the cover of Essence, December 1994. And I speak and travel and do HIV-AIDS education. Um, most relevant to this story is that I grew up a very dysfunctional family. Um, I grew up unloved, unwanted, and abused by the mother who was to raise me. And you know, um, in many ways, having lived through my mother and her madness um, gave me a training ground to be able to live with the madness of HIV for so very, very long. 
Ray, I wonder, how did you come to live with the woman that created such havoc in your life? Tell me about your parents. You know, I, um, my mom and dad were heroin addicts. I uh, was product of a by of an interracial um, couple in 1962. Um, my mother, my biological mother, after I met her, said to me that they were two addicts, two junkies getting together. So I was born to this woman uh, prematurely. I weighed three pounds and stayed in the incubator for a month. Um, I tell people often that I spent my first nine months of life sucking an umbilical cord laced in heroin. My grandfather took me, my paternal grandfather took me from my parents when I was a toddler. I know it was after one years of age, but I'm not quite sure what year it was. And he was raising me, and he married um, a woman who was 25 years his junior, and when I was six years old, they had only been married for a year, actually, and when I was six years old, my granddaddy died, and I was left to, I was left to live with my, technically my step-grandmother. Um, she was the only mother I knew for many, many years, although I knew she, I knew who, of my mother, um, my mother was still living the life of a heroin addict, my biological mother. My father had been shot and killed over drugs. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, did not want to raise her little black grandbaby. So Mama, as I refer to her very often on my blog and in my writings, Mama was um, granddaddy's wife. And she kept me and raised me. And, you know, even um, from the day my grandfather died, um, she would say to me, nobody wanted you. Um, and so for many, many years, she was all that I had. And she was reluctant or at least less than willing to shower you with love and affection? You know, I think she was incapable of loving me. You know, and I, since um, I went back and had started working on my memoir. Um, I had a book deal with Hyperion, lost it. They didn't want the smart black girl. They wanted the black girl with the horrible life, but they didn't want me to be able to, they didn't want me to, to be able to contextualize uh, in 27 years of education I do have. So mama, as I call her mama, she was the only mother I knew for 18 years. Um, I knew that, I knew the circumstances which I came to live with mother, with my mama, and there was no deception, but I didn't meet my biological mother until I was 18. But mama, mama, mama was a functional alcoholic. She had a third grade reading level. And when I look back, um, trying to dissect some of my story, it occurred to me that mama, mama was, um, my granddaddy married her to take care of his grandbaby. And so here we is, this woman in her very early 30s with a six-year-old child and no parental skills of her own. You know, she, I mean, she could barely read and write, which I didn't actually realize that was the aha moment well into my 20s that my mother was a functional illiterate. And so what does the mother do um, who's damaged herself? I, I discovered that her mother had her at 13 and left her in Alabama to be raised by aunts and uncles. And so this woman didn't know how to love, you know. So I don't know that um, 
she didn't want to love me. I think that she didn't know. She didn't understand healthy. She didn't know what it was. And she only knew one way. Um, But she was interesting in that she was a functioning alcoholic. Mama went to work every day. She was a maid. She went to work every day. Our lights never got cut off. She cooked a meal every evening. Uh, But she told me most days of my life that I wasn't ever going to be shit. And that's a reality. In fact, she just say, bitch, you ain't never going to be shit. And I was red bitch this, and I was white bitch that. And, um, and so mama didn't know what mama didn't know. The problem then becomes a child, I, I grew up in this life unloved, looking, and, and it put me in a position where I went out looking for love. And, and, and let me put a caveat in here that connected to mama but not connected Totally to mama. I'm an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So the men that were in my life violated me. And mama mama didn't know until I was 13. She knew about her husband. And there became a shift in our relationship when I told her about her husband. Because she was like, bitch, I ain't going to let you mess up my shit. And I, and so the, it be, I became a competition. But prior to that shift, Mama didn't know what she didn't know, and all I knew was that I hurt. And I and I we moved to the suburbs in seventh grade, so I began to see a life outside of the life of Mama. Um, I went to an upper middle class church where parents had PhDs, and I began to see um, children, young adult, young young teenagers, preteens, interacting with their parents in ways that didn't happen in my household. And, of course, I was an avid reader because reading was my escapism. It was the way out of mama. You know, I could read and not have to think about my mama and her madness. And so, in many ways, back to this, mama didn't know what she didn't know. And I was left in a world of uncertainty. I was left in a world of mama's inability to, to parent in a nurturing kind of way. Now she, look, let me tell you, mama kept that house clean. She cooked a meal every day. I never went without. I never saw my mama stagger. Um, she bought me clothes. And I, and, and the clothes became how I saw love because it didn't matter what mama did or didn't do. There was nothing I asked for that mama didn't give me. There were every pay period she brought me home clothes. And the more she gave, the more I asked. Because clothes was the only attention that I got from my mama. You have said that the only thing that was for certain in your house was uncertainty. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yes. You see, you grow up, you see um, on TV, you see this family with structure and, you know, the Brady Bunch, and it's going to be what and it's going to be, and love and nurture and everybody laughing. In my house, and wait, and in, in the Brady Bunch, they would laugh, and the show would end, and everybody, would, you know, the problems were resolved, and didn't nobody get beaten. Growing up in my house, the only thing that was for certain really was uncertainty. You know, we could start out laughing in, in, in around the table, and it would end up with a, a camera upside my head and I'm trying to figure out what the hell did I do to get beaten and it it created for me 
uh, this overachiever kind of mentality because I never wanted to give my mom a reason to beat me. It, it took years for me to get that she didn't need no reason to beat me. It was going to be. So when I thought there was a certain way to do something and this is how it was going to be, um, mama would change the program. You know, mama would switch it up because, you know, because that's what mama did. You know, um, if I thought I was safe um, with uh, I've done all my chores, done everything I needed to do, if dishes are clean, mama ain't had no reason to beat me, then she beats me out of a bed at 6 o'clock in the morning to find her brush. It was really 5 o'clock in the morning to find her brush. Bitch, I know you got it. I know you had it. And I got to pull myself together after I find mama's brush that was actually in her purse. Uh-huh, nowhere okay. near you. Nowhere near me, but in her purse then I have to pull myself together and go to school, you know, and, and try to learn. Did you ever share your home problems with uh, a teacher or someone at school? You know, I didn't, not in that sense. Um, when I was 13 in eighth grade, I uh, tried to commit suicide. Really, you know, they say you're just doing it for attention. I, it wasn't attention, in it, and I didn't want to die. Let me be clear. But it was a cry for help. Somebody pay attention to this madness that I'm living in. And somewhere after about an hour of taking all of these pills, I went to my girlfriend's house, and her mother took me to the emergency room. And um, we did one visit with the therapist, Mama and I, and um, um, and that was the end of that because Mama just wrote it off as that bitch just fast. But Mama, Mama was Mama, and um, there was never any rhyme to reason, and there was really never a reason. You know, when I look back on some of this stuff, whatever issues that she had, you know, was she just mean, or did she just have low self-esteem? And, you know, we had, you don't know, we had skin color issues, and the more education I got, we had education levels. And um, and then Mama had to deal with her own self-esteem. Because what, what does it say about a woman who stays in a house with a man uh, who is grabbing the, her, the, the daughter's breast? And so, um, and so there was no rhyme to reason. It was just Mama's rhyme. Well, at some point, did she uh, throw you out of the house? Or did she do it more than once? You know, I um, Mama... My senior year of high school, October my senior year of high school, um, I came home 15 minutes late from my curfew, 12.15. I was at a dance party. And just a little background, I really, um, I've been drug, alcohol-free my entire life. And so, in fact, I was always afraid to use drugs and alcohol. I mean, I like boys, but who didn't like boys, you know, at 17? Um, and I came home 15 minutes late from my curfew. The double locks were on the door. Um, I banged on the door. Mama didn't answer. I went to the corner pay phones way before cell phones. I called, and I said, Mama, um, the double locks are on the door. And she said, I know, bitch. Just go back where you just came from. The next day, I, I called. The next morning, I, my girlfriend's mom let me spend a night with them that night. And I called, and my, Mama said, come get your shit. And that began, that began, that just began to define this adult relationship 
that I had with my mother. Because, you know, once you move out of your mama's house, you grown. And um, I stayed out for a couple years, and I came back for three months. And Now, when you were away for two years, how did you manage to support yourself? Because you were a very... Honey, working. You know, you... Um, uh, I tell people I was homeless at one time. I ain't never going to be homeless again. But I know what it's like to grow up, um, t- to be in, in this house and trying to figure out. I shared a house with two girls that were uh, in my age, that were my age. How to figure out where your next meal is going to come from. I know what it's like to take a bag of white potatoes and eat french fries for the doggone week. And this was back in the day when... Um, uh, chicken wings were cheap. You can get shoe. You can get ten chicken wings for two dollars. You know, at the grocery store. And so, um, I know what that struggle's like. But got up, went to. I commuted to the suburbs of Chicago to school. Um, I got up every morning at five. Went to school. Uh, when school was over, I came uh, to my first job at the men's clothing store in downtown Evanston. And when that job was over, I went to my second job at McDonald's, and I stayed at work until close of the day, which is 11, 12 o'clock for McDonald's. And then I got back on the train for our commute back home. And so I, I survived the best way I could. Uh, and the most honorable way that I could. Did you have a Social Security check? Because I you did. Were still a minor. I was still a minor, and um, what was amazing about that was there was a period where I was telling my friends' mothers about what was going on in my house, and so I had a um, a girl, my girlfriend's, one of my good friends. In high school, her mom, they went. we went to church together. They knew about my circumstances, and they, they told um, a police officer who actually did use insurance about my situation. So there were some people who knew about my situation, but there was never any rescue. Um, and so Mama put me out, and I had been out, and we hadn't been talking for about, I don't know, four months, three, about at least a good three months or so, and... Someone told me that I could go down to Social Security and get my own Social Security check. So I went. And because Mama had never adopted me, I was technically a ward of the state. And since I was 17, I had never been in any, tr- any trouble. And I was complying in school. I could get the check. And I will never forget um, that that day I got called down to the office. But see, Mama was okay with me not being there. But Mama wasn't okay with that check not being there. <laughs> and honey, let me tell you, I came down to the uh, to the principal's office. I was called out of class. I walked in to the room. Um, the truant officer, police officer, was sitting there. Um, a social worker was sitting there. The assistant principal was sitting there. And Mama, and Mama told them that I ran away and I was a liar and. The good thing was that I had shared my story, and that's what young women who are living in abuse need to know. You need to share your story with someone. You can't live in the silence. Even if no one does anything, some you, you got to share it. Well, you need a place to process the pain, but then who knows what your help you're going to need along the line. And it was the same police officer that was friends with my girlfriend's mom who was in that meeting. 
and he knew the circumstances. And he said, he looked at me and he looked at my mother and he said, well, you're 18 years old and you're 17 years old. You're a ward of the state. Legally, you don't have to go back. And for me, that was a deciding moment because I could, I could um, decide to go back to that chaos because we love these people who abuse us, and we're trying to meet their approval. Yes. And, you know, it was, but the moment was, Mama, will Mama stop loving me if I don't go back? But I had a taste of freedom, and it felt good being able to wake up in the morning uh, without being beaten, without being cussed out, that I could determine what my life, it was a hard life. But I could determine some of my environment. So I said I wasn't going back. And that was the, that was the start, really, 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 of our adult relationship. And she didn't talk to me for well over a year after that one meeting. And then, you know, over a course from the time I was um, 17, my senior high school, to the time I think uh, I was like 21, um, we had a couple encounters where I came and lived with her for the summer. And they would always end in disaster. They would always end in disaster. And that very last time, I'll never forget, uh, Mama was jealous of the woman that I was becoming because the woman that I was becoming was beyond her reach. She could never be that woman. I mean, this is a woman now we're talking about. We're in her 40s, 50s, um, going into her, you know, her 50s. Uh, she has no education. She's been a maid her whole life. Um, she's an ordinary black woman, looking woman. She wasn't unattractive. She's just ordinary looking. And um, and this is who she was. This was going to be her journey for the rest. Of, she's going to be a maid for the rest of her life. Um, and and so. It complicated our relationship. But I decided I had just come back. I had been staying with my mother for the summer. I went away to college. I had been staying with her for the summer. We were trying to mend things. And I went to the Soviet Union. I worked, started off in student politics, which was the first part of my life was working as a political organizer in politics, national politics. But I, Jesse Jackson, I represented Reverend Jesse Jackson at the 12th World Festival of Youth and Students in Moscow. I just come back from Moscow, and Mama said, we were just having tensions. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go stay with my girlfriend for the weekend. And she said, bitch, take your shit if you leave. And that was the last time I stayed with Mama. Well, tell me this. Um, you mentioned that you and your mother were trying to mend your relationship. Uh, no, we weren't trying to mend it. Let's, let me clarify that. I was trying to get Mama to love me and... And trying to stay connected mm -hmm. to my mother. So, Mama wasn't trying to do Jack. Okay. Okay, but go on. Um, at some point, your mother had a breakdown, and you swooped in to the rescue. Uh, the cancer? Yeah. You know, Mama, our relationship... No, your... Biological your, mother. Your, yes. Okay, so now we've added her to the picture. Oh, yes, because okay. she is important. If it were not for her... I wouldn't be here. You know, my biological mother was complicated, um, to say the, that's just the best way to put it. You know, if I had to be a Facebook um, uh, status, I would call it complicated, with three Ds at the end of it. Um Mother was, my mother, my biological mother was a heroin addict most of her life. Um, she, at some point, most of her young adult adult life, she did get clean. 
when I met her, she was clean. She was living a life, upper middle class life, married, um, and things were going well for her. Um, she and I started to develop this adult relationship. So I met Mama at eight, my biological mother when I was 18, so I was already an adult. Um, and we were doing well, and she moved out of the country for a few years, and so most of the connection was through letter. And then she came back to the States, and when she came back to the States, her marriage, um, her and her husband divorced. And the divorce, Mama's, my mother's divorce sent her over the edge. And she became um, mentally unstable. She tried to commit a suicide, commit suicide in the most gruesome way. And I rushed to Boston to, you know, to save Mama because, you know, that's what I do. I always save everybody but my damn self. And what I had to come to understand about my biological mother is that she was who she was. She was not capable either. That addiction, um, she lived a life of an addict. But once you become clean, doesn't mean that um, the behavior of an addict is still very self-centered um, and very self-focused. And in many ways, it has to be because they need to stay clean. But on the other hand, it's just some narcissistic crap. And my mother never, my biological mother never came to a good place with herself. And so our relationship was always plagued, not by her unwillingness to love me, but just her inability to love herself. And that was key for my biological mother, Dorje. Dorje didn't love herself. And when people don't love themselves, they don't know how to love others. And my mother's self-loathing was so extreme that she didn't think that she deserved love from me. And so it made our relationship complicated. Now, Mama, Mama was who she was. She willed what she was, um, our relationship, there was never a period in our relationship where she became nice. Um, it was always about her. She was narcissistic too. It was always about her. The relationship was always about her. I remember when I told my mother I had AIDS, mama that I had AIDS, I told my biological mother I had AIDS. Um, a few, a couple years before I told Mama that I had uh, AIDS, a biological mother was compassionate about it, but she was just incapable. My Mama, Mama said, "See, bitch, I told you." She was the last person I told that I had HIV. In fact, I tell people back then I was like, "Shoot, if I could have found a way to to speak and be on the cover of Essence magazine without telling my Mama, I would have," because um, Mama didn't disappoint me. And she never got nice. And in her latter years, both of these women are deceased now. And my, my mama who raised me in her latter years, she developed cancer of the mouth. I find that very ironic. As do I. You know. But you know what? She was, I was I'm the only person take care, taking care of her. I would come to the hospital room and mama would cuss me out and get me straight. I'd go, honey, here I am, 37-year-old, grown woman, crying, tears cut down, you know. And um, I came to a place where I said, you know what, either we're going to live peacefully or we're not going to live at all. But I took care of my mother in her dying year. She had cancer for two and a half years. I took care of her, not because of who she was, but because of who I am. Be I'm sorry. Go on. 
I was just going to um, just kind of cut to the letter that you received from Dorje, your oh, biological mother. Oh, Mama said, my biological mother sent me a letter um, saying um, that uh, she um, hated all niggas and wished the hell that she had never had me. That was complicated by her addiction. And it, it, for 20 years, I had been maintaining the relationship with Dorje as best as I could, protecting myself from her mental illness because, you know, the years that she used using drugs, it just it, it messed her up. And I would do the best I can to put to manage that relationship. It was an easy relationship to manage in that if I called her, she was having a bad day, I'd just say, talk to you later, and we'd move on. Um, but this one got me. And I remember my therapist saying, your mother is dangerous because she doesn't love herself. And when people don't love themselves, they're not capable of loving you. But if they don't value their life, they don't value your life. And so if she was capable of hurting herself, she was capable of hurting me. And so I cut my ties off with her for two and a half years um, until her deathbed. And we sort of reconciled in her death and dying. I remember I walked into that um, hospital room and the first thing she said to me when she looked at me was, you're beautiful. And my, my mother was her cantankerous self. Now, she was never mean to me. She was just not capable. Addiction ruled her thinking in life. And um, we never spoke a word about anything that had happened in the past. But um, I sat there with her that day. And um, she was her fussy cantankerous self. But we had come to a place where we were saying, it's okay. Who you are is okay. I accept that I love you in spite of that, but I protect myself in the process. And my mother started dying. I left that hospital that day, went to the hotel, came back the next morning, and she, she started dying. It was as if seeing me for that one last time, she was okay with herself, that she was at peace with herself. And I had, in a way, come to terms, too, because I never forget I was standing in the hallway trying to convince these white doctors in Buffalo, New York, that this black woman standing in front of them was it. If they could share the information with me or they just got a ward of the state on their hands. And the doctor said to me, um, it's something about my mother's addiction. And I said, my mother hasn't used drugs in 30 years. And he said to me, your mother, um, your mother is, he's like, that's not true. I was like, my mother was an addict. She hasn't been an addict. He said, your mother is on methadone. And I just went blank. Like all the life had been sucked out of me. And I was like, are you telling me that my mother started using again? And then it made sense for me the letter that she had sent, not to make an excuse for her, because I don't want people to think that I'm making excuses for my white mama and I'm beating up my black mama, because I took care of my black mama for two and a half years, and she cussed me out every, every I hadn't seen my white mother in years. But it made sense of who she was and that she was so at peace. And I began to understand that addiction had ruled her life. Um, and mama said, my mother 
Every day I came to the hospital that week, we could see more of the death and the dying. Finally, at at the end of the week, the doctor said, your mother's never going to recover. Then I went and I took care of all of her affairs and uh, prepared it for death because my grandmother didn't want to have anything to do with my mother. Talk about damaged daughters. I concluded that whatever happened to my mother in in her mother's house messed her up. In fact, my mother has a sister whom I've never met. And from what I understand, that that my aunt was no better in living a functional life than my mother was. So they got messed up by their mother. Uh, And I have not had the benefit of knowing my grandmother because she didn't want to know her black granddaughter. But um, she died peacefully, and I was at peace with it. I, I also... With my mama who raised me, I mean, I took care of her for two and a half years, and I would commute her. And you'll know this sense of these, the dynamics of demographics. She lived in Evanston, and I commuted her to the University of Chicago for chemo, all of her treatment. I would, and I lived five minutes from the University of Chicago in South Shore. I would drive to this Evanston, 30 miles away, pick up mama, take her to chemo, do everything that needed to be done, um, drive her back to Evanston, and then drive myself back home. And so I did what I did out of out of my Christian ethos, not because Mama was nice. Well, Ray, we're going to wrap it up. Oh, God. oh Jesus, no! Okay. <laughs> and I just wonder if you have any parting words that you'd like to share with our sisters? You know, I do. We grow up in these houses with these women who don't love themselves, who are narcissistic, and who don't know how to love us because they don't even know how to love themselves. And then we become adults and we try to have to figure out what does it mean to be whole? What does normal look like? And, And then there's this group of young women out here who are living in these chaos, now, young girls growing up in an abused household, and there are young uh, 20-year-olds that's still trying to define their relationships with mama because the relationship is hard with mama. This is what I want you to know, is that it must begin with the love of yourself. Jack your mama. Forget what mama got to say. Forget. It, it must begin with your own self-worth. And you have to know that you are shaped and created in God's perfect image. And once you get that, it doesn't ever matter whether you'll be able to accept the fact of your, your mama's real flaws and begin to love yourself and stop looking for the love of her. And, and, and stop looking for the love of mama will then begin to make you whole because they ain't never going to be able to give you what you but what I want you to really understand is that there's resilience at the end of the end of that abuse. That there is healing for yourself at the other end of that abuse. Um, it is, it, and and that must begin with you and yourself, not with your mom. Wow, powerful words from a powerful, strong woman. Thank you so much, Ray Lewis Thornton, for sharing your wisdom with your sister. And I am going to end this podcast and just say that keep your yourself uppermost 
in your mind. As Ray pretty much said, you have to love you first. So until the next time, bye for now. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network is an Afrocentric media organization designed to express the collective interests of the black world's community. Join us at 11 a.m. Monday through Friday for What Books Sound Like on Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. We're always looking to give gifts that are meaningful. Well, here's a unique and truly personal gift idea. A handwritten journal from your mom or dad or even your sister. Or a book of personal thoughts from grandma or grandpa, written especially for their grandkids. Visit www.betweenmeandyoubooks.com. That's betweenmeandyoubooks.com. Between Me and You journals become handwritten keepsakes to be cherished forever. Order at betweenmeandyoubooks.com. Have you been injured in a car crash, slip and fall, or dog bite incident? Has a loved one been injured or killed as a result of birthing negligence, nursing home neglect, or a work accident? Legal-Chicago.com helps Chicagoans find the right lawyer for free. Our work is making clients whole after they've been wronged by the negligence of others. Our work is connecting Chicagoans with the right lawyer for their case. Legal-Chicago.com's mission is to put cash into clients' hands. Legal, the hyphen symbol, Chicago.com. Visit legal-chicago.com for a free consultation and membership to our network of attorneys. Are you tired of waking up to sleep lines on your face and cleavage wrinkles on your chest? You know, those unnecessary creases that are carved into your skin after hours of sleeping on your side or belly. Introducing the Beauty Keeper Back Sleeper, the only pillow designed to actually train you to start sleeping on your back and stay there comfortably throughout the night. Imagine you could wake up to a fresh, line-free face and chest every morning. We promise you'll see results or your money back. The Beauty Keeper Back Sleeper Pillow. Get yours today at www.mybacksleeper.com. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you.